I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Music of Throwing Muses, and the singer of that band is Kristen Hirsch, and she is my guest today. Now, I don't know if you know about Throwing Muses' work, but if you do, you do know that they're hard to categorize. Their music is kind of a stormy mix of, uh, I don't know, post-punk, uh, I guess is the best way to say it. It's wild, it's untamed, it's tender, um, and in spite of the kind of surreal nature of the songs, the music is emotionally precise. The band formed in 1981 when uh, Kristen and her best friend Tanya Donnelly, yeah, Tanya Donnelly, later of Belly, the uh, Grammy award-winning Belly, I should add, uh, well, they were best friends in high school, and uh, they, uh, they started the band together. And they also became stepsisters when uh, Kristen's mom married Tanya's dad. But maybe that's for another podcast. That's a whole other conversation. Uh, Throwing Muses, they are the first American band to be signed to the British label 4AD. And all this time, you thought it was the Pixies, didn't you? Yeah. At parties, you probably brought that information out, and people were like, wow, that, that person, they know their stuff. Well, you didn't. It was Throwing Muses. Don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. Just update your mental Wikipedia page, and from now on at parties, remember... Throwing Muses, not the Pixies. As a solo artist, Kristen has released 10 albums, including 2016's Wyatt at the Coyote Palace. I love that record. You should uh, pick that up after the interview. Listen to the interview first, then go get that album. That is a, that is a killer, a straight-up killer. She's also the author of three books, Toby Snacks, Rat Girl, which is, for my money, one of the greatest rock and roll memoirs ever written. It is absolutely indispensable. It should be on your bookshelf. It is incredible. Uh, she also wrote the fabulous book, Don't Suck, Don't Die, Giving Up Vic Chestnut. So there you go. There's your primer on Kristen Hirsch. Oh, she's also recording a new album uh, with Throwing Muses, and there's a new solo album in the works as well. Okay? She's busy, you guys. She's also the mom of four boys, so she's super busy. But busy as she is, she remains incredibly prolific. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Kristen Hirsch and how she figures into my life. I was one of those mid-80s college radio guys, and uh, I was into like R.E.M. and Love Tractor and Dream Syndicate and Green on Red, and then Throwing Muses showed up. 
And I was like, what in the devil is this? And I loved them. I loved them so much because they were weird and frenetic and melodic. And there was something, uh, you know, it sounded like, uh, like music from a tempest. I didn't understand it, but I liked it. It made me feel stuff. And as we all know, there is nothing more confusing than a 19-year-old guy feeling stuff. What I'm saying is I didn't know what I was feeling, but there was something that was kind of uh, set on fire by throwing muses. I don't know how else to say it, but that band just rung my bell. I loved them. Then one of the college radio people from Sire sent me the Hunk Papa poster for the, uh, the album of the same name back in 1989 This is when it came out. And I put the poster on my wall in my bedroom. There wasn't an empty space in that room. It was covered from ceiling to floor. Okay, there weren't really posters on the floor, but there were posters everywhere. And the Hunk Papa poster, which featured throwing muses in a diner, eating lunch or dinner, I don't know. I remember a bottle of ketchup is on the table, so I guess ketchup is a lunch or, uh, or a dinner item. So... I was making a big leap and suggesting in my mind that it was lunch, but the point is they were sitting around a table, they looked happy, they looked mysterious, and they looked cool, and I wish I was at that table with them. Interviewing Kristen Hirsch made me feel like I was finally at that table, and I don't know. It was really kind of a cool experience for me because I love Kristen Hirsch's work. She's a powerful presence. I've listened to her for a really long time, and I've always felt that Throwing Muses were my teammates. I felt like with all those other bands I had on my wall, that was like my team. That was, that, was the, that was my starting squad. The Jazz Butcher, the Dream Syndicate, the Blue Airplanes, Ben Vaughn, Throwing Muses. Those were my teammates. Those were my guys. And, uh, and Kristen Hirsch and Throwing Muses, they were in the starting lineup for me. And during this conversation I have with Kristen, she was telling me how her son was talking about how we find people. In our lives, how we find the people that are meant to be close to us. And he said to his mom, he said, you got to find your teammates. And it was such a cool thing because I was talking to her and I realized I was talking to one of my teammates. And the only thing cooler than that is when you finally get to tell them that they are your teammate. So I do listen to it in the conversation. You'll hear it. Uh, It's at the end. So I'm going to make you wait for it. Anyway, Kristen and I have a great conversation. We really break it down. She is genial. She's smart. She's funny. She's wise. And she is just wonderful. Enjoy my conversation with Kristen Hirsch right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. You and I, we almost met a couple of years ago because I was going to moderate your event at uh, Green Apple in San Francisco when your Vic Chestnut book came out. Um, oh, I know. Wow, and so cool. I was I was ready to go, but then my own book was set to come out the same night, so I had to cancel at the last second. <laughs> so Oh my god, that's bizarre. I know. I know. And the the three people that came to my reading, boy, they would have been disappointed if I wasn't there. Um <laughs> Star-crossed books. Star-crossed books. So, cool. so so we finally meet and it's good to uh, good to chat with you. How are you? I'm okay. Sorry, is that a bad answer? Sorry, no. <laughs> no, I think being okay is a, is a great answer. Um, okay, good. <laughs> driving when, on the five. <laughs> as you're, usually, you know. <laughs> as you're driving on the five. It's funny, it's funny that I've caught you on your way to work because I was thinking about your career and I was thinking about how I, I watched it kind of begin because um, I was in college radio. I started listening to your band when I was in high school, right as you guys were coming out. 
Um, and I was thinking, you know, looking over your career, you are a productive person. And I like how prolific you are. Have you, have you always been someone who is sort of tireless in your work? That's such a nice way of putting it. It's more like I won't shut up <laughs> or listen to anyone who tells me to. <laughs> like, I mean, for one, musicians aren't asked to do very much. In, in the uh, old school recording industry, for example, you are supposed to put out a record every couple of years. That's like, what, six songs a year? Shouldn't we be asked to do more than that? But no, they don't. They want um, as little output as possible and as many copies sold as possible, meaning your job is to make false friends. And I wasn't willing to do that, so I kept putting out um, substantive material, or that was the goal, (laughs) to core listeners. And now I think that serves me, but uh, it did not serve me to be in the traditional recording industry because I was never going to inflict fashion on what I did um, or be a bimbo. You know, it's, a, it's not even insidious what they ask you to do. <laughs> it, it's an overt um, request on their part. Dumb it down and present yourself as a cartoon you know it's you've heard it before but it didn't it didn't suit my materials so i got out before the thing came crashing down and i did sell millions of records just it just took me a long time millions of years (laughs) they want you to sell a million copies of one dumb record Yeah, I think I heard something like the Violent Femmes' first album. It said, well, it, well, it eventually sold, you know, a couple million records, but it took 30 years to do it. Yes. I mean, that is a legendary example, probably the only example. Um, that, and that, that record deserved it, oddly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, I didn't ever sell a million copies of any particular record. I just have uh, returned customers who have adopted my soundtrack as theirs, which to me is a, an incredibly high honor, obviously, um, because I wasn't trying to fool anybody. And, I mean, a couple of times we um, got the message that we were going to be dropped if we didn't give them a dumb song, and so we did that a couple of times, but um, it's not worth it, and they didn't try to sell our records anyway, so it was really not worth it. <laughs> I mean, when it's your religion, you you don't want to suck. It, they're saying to a, a spiritual endeavor, turn this whole uh, journey and everybody on it with you into televangelism. And you're, you're going to question that. If you're an actual musician, you will question that. I think any artist would, would, struggle, would struggle with that, um, that notion. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but there are very few artists in the entertainment industry, obviously. Right. Most of us are dorks, necessarily. We stayed in our rooms practicing when everybody else was out having fun. And um, we once you unlock the... It's not secrets, but it's like a... Um, it's a door. You walk through it. There's, there's no going back. Once you see something true, 
in, say, music, you can't be lied to any longer, and you're not going to lie to others. There's too much at stake. And they don't even see what's at stake because they're not. it's not their vocabulary. Their vocabulary is sell a product and make sure it rots people's teeth. <laughs> and also, doesn't it have to do with motivation? I mean, your motivation for why you never did it to be on the cover of a magazine. You did it because you had to do it, and you did it for artistic reasons, right? So that you weren't trying to be famous. In fact, the opposite. When when you succeed, if you are if you are out to to do something substantive, say if if that is in fact opposed to style, then when you succeed in their world, you question yourself, and, and you should, because it, there are very few. Um, spiritual endeavors that are going to sell themselves as televangelism. So if I, when I was on the cover of anything, I would think, what did I do wrong? Oh. Which it, it sounds like it's an exclusive position, but I just questioned their marketing techniques and it seemed to be uh, to the lowest common denominator, which is something I don't even believe in. I think people are idiosyncratic in their taste. So if I trusted their marketing and knew they were reaching people and their musical literacy was responding, you know, there's a resonance at play, then I would think, oh, well, yeah, a magazine cover will happen or a radio hit. But I know that's not how they went about selling. Well, one thing about you that I've always, I've always admired is that you've always had the songs. I mean, sometimes people will, you know, keep cranking out music and, and it sound it just seems like the material is um, recycled or they seem like they're out of ideas. And, and you just seem like someone who's never uh, out of ideas, which I, I find so inspiring to look over your, over your work and everything is so fresh and so interesting. Um, did That's you... nice to hear. See, you put everything in a nice way. Other people don't like that. Like, why didn't you do the thing I liked again? Well, <laughs> now I don't like you anymore. But that's the weird thing about people is that people really what they want is they want the same thing because it's, because for, it, they don't want to be challenged. They want to feel the safety of consistency. Um, and I and I yeah you know I I felt that once in my life. I remember when REM started going. A different direction. I remember feeling like, why can't you just be jangly and obscure? Um, but well, if it sucks, then you're not. You're gonna want them to do the good thing again, right? I, I guess that. Of course. <laughs> but if it sucks, you know, if there's like meaning, and it's it's cloaked in something that makes you listen harder, then it seems like a change would be refreshing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, you know, I've always I. I've always felt what was so interesting about throwing muses and about your work is that there's, I couldn't find anybody else who sounded like you guys. Um, and I love that. Sort of, <laughs> no that... kidding. Who would want that? <laughs> <laughs> it's psychotic. And I didn't know. I, we, we were just, we were literally from an island and we were an island unto ourselves, but we thought you were supposed to develop your own language and then support each other in it to develop it further and then presented as such. We didn't know you were expected to sound like a watered-down version of all your influences. And we didn't even have any influences. <laughs> we started when we were little children. And it was too late by the time we had developed our sonic vocabulary 
to be influenced even by bands we loved, like X and the Friends and the Meat Puppets and the Minutemen. Like, that would have been a smarter way to go. <laughs> Watered-down versions of, you know, substantive output. But we didn't know. We, we were, I mean, literally, we were children when we started. And by the time we sounded like throwing muses, it was too late to sound like anybody else. And it is a little bit sad. <laughs> Because <laughs> we thought we were a party band. We played parties on our island. But, you know, everybody showed up and danced. We didn't know. We, we thought it was normal. <laughs> and then we got that, that um, it's a bizarre mindset to me, but it, it's like invention is always going to be suspect. So you get that response, which is, do you not sound like everyone else because you don't know how? Because you aren't as good as everyone else? And I'm thinking... Do you know how easy that would be? And do you know how hard it is to do what we do? Which is essentially like four people playing four different songs at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned the Minutemen because I I never thought about it before, but in in your work with Throwing Muses, uh, the syncopation, the, the sort of um, those sneaky and sudden and strange rhythms that show up, uh, it seems very much rooted in in uh, what the minute and we're doing as well a totally different way but i can totally see that now that you mention it yeah and sounding like yourself sounding idiosyncratic within your scene which is also idiosyncratic like the Minutemen, you, you don't you wouldn't guess that they would sound that way which is almost like a jazz orientation and even recording technique um and we had similarly raw sounds and um, unpredictable material structures, time signatures, chords. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Do you do you feel as a solo artist? Do you feel much freer than you did when you were in the band? I mean, now that you've had um, you know a solo career, which has been going on, you know, what twenty twenty five years. Do you feel a kind of personal freedom and artistic freedom at the same time? As a solo artist? Yeah. Do you do you feel because you're out of the machine, you're making your own decisions for yourself in a way that you oh, couldn't see. before, right? Yeah. Well, that was more just record company. I still have my bands ongoing, and like throwing music is in the studio on the west coast, and I'm in the studio solo on the east coast. And when the muses are out, fifty foot wave moves. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this sort of um, it, it's a cycle of recording where each you know the sonic vocabulary and the presentation are different and I don't know if that informs the material or vice versa I haven't figured that out yet but I it's like three different freedoms um solo definitely means I crawl into my own skull but I have to be the producer without any help then so I have to be extremely objective in solo recording. And, you know, oddly, my solo records are the the biggest productions um, because I, I'm playing everything I can boss myself around. And I just don't stop the stupid overdubs and building instruments and breaking stuff and hoping it sounds messed up. And, you know, nobody would really let me do that. So there's a lot of freedom in that. <laughs> Um, well, sure. Unless I mean, my producer self starts bossing me around. But then when the, the bands are in, it's like, uh, there's like a, a more open presentation where it looks, the bass player is the same and both the drummers switched out. 
for a 50 foot wave, but, um, it's, I, I trust them with my life and, and more than that with, I'm going to use the word soul, but that's the only word I can think of. I know that they don't lie and they don't have egos. And so it's almost less going on in the studio with both my bands because there's so much clarity at play just when we walk into the room. It's sort of a done deal. The playing will happen. When the song enters the room, we know which take it is. There's just not that much that has to be done. So it's probably more freeing with my bands around. What is it like to, at this point to crawl into your own skull? Because that really is, that's a sort of um, a place to go that is, you know, you're by yourself. You got to get in there and, and poke around and see what's going on. Is that crawling into your own skull? Is that easier now than it was in the past? Or is it just as difficult because there's so many, um, there's no objectivity coming from the external. It's all internal. That's what it should be. I think, although I have to say my experience of inspiration, it does come from the external. It's not, me it's not self-expression i don't i think that would be extremely limiting to try to write music uh as a form of self-expression that's that i would be ashamed to do that and sell it to people i have lived all the stories in my songs i i needed to develop that those muscles in order to be able to speak them musically and hope that they resonated with a listener but when I crawl into my own skull as a producer and a musician in the studio, it's only to recreate the moment of inspiration. So I have to become the person I was when I heard the song in the first place. Does that make sense? It does. It reminds me of that preface to the lyrical ballads, that idea that like an emotion reflected in tranquility, because you have to go back and apprehend it, right? And it's like a syringe of a memory. So it's extremely intense. That makes it sound like it's almost peaceful. It's not peaceful for me. But I I think maybe I'm wrong about that, that peace is not a quiet thing. That you have, or I have to be in a hurricane or I can't be still. <laughs> <laughs> I, and house tornado, one might say. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a very nice person. I'm a very sweet person. And the... In order for me to be empty enough in this goal to embody these works, there has to be a hurricane flying around. And the interesting thing about a hurricane is it's similar um, in uh, particulate and energy to a river where it's nothing you can really define and capture. Obviously, every second of a hurricane is a different piece of particulate and energy. And as a song rushes by, you have to remember that. It's, you're not there to uh, limit it with your definition. You're not there to contain it. You're there to show its unstoppable movement. Are you more efficient now at doing that, or is it still as challenging as it always has been? Oh, I'm really good at it. <laughs> I was... Uh, miserable in the studio as a young person I couldn't bear to try and lob the limbs off the songs and throw them back on and expect them to walk around like Frankenstein that 
it seemed to be anathema to a song's nature to limit it and contain it, which it is, like I said. But that's because I hadn't figured out that there was a spark and a palette to the studio. It's a form of expression that doesn't have to mimic live. It just has to mimic that lightning bolt that is the moment of inspiration. And it can do so however is appropriate for the piece and the time. But I had to learn. It took many, many, many years for me to learn that I could be a musician and it was okay that I had to leave the babies at home or, you know, I rarely did that. Actually, I had to put them in ISO booths and mic them <laughs> while they slept and bring up their faders to make sure that they were still sleeping or two vocals with a baby on my lap. I have four children. Um, and I was band leader, so I had to be a, a good friend and a good bandmate. And I had to fire people at times. It's like there's so much at play. You're often living in the studio or you're essentially living in the studio because you can't afford to leave to eat or sleep. It's just such an intense life experience that I had to wrap my head around. It's, I don't know. It's like hang gliding. You know, if somebody woke you up one day and said, go jump off that cliff, you'd probably rail against the whole experience until you realized, oh, jumping off cliffs is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I think there should be a memoir about motherhood called Mike the Baby. That's... <laughs> Mike, that baby. It's okay. (laughs) Mike, that kid. Uh, Bring up that kid's fader. Given me at this point. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. But if you explain, like, if you explain that to your younger self, say you're 25, and you explain what you just explained about about the efficiency and what you've learned, um, the 25 year old you would understand that. It's not that they that they wouldn't get it, but they wouldn't be able to do it because it takes years to perfect it. Is that right? nice way of putting it i suppose so i have been feeling guilty because these records are babies too and i wasn't able to serve them very well i uh, just uh, the fact that i worked with producers is, was a mistake i i was the one that knew them i, I don't know it's just like you have a baby and then you got to drop it out of daycare and you think there's something wrong with this there was always something wrong, and now I worship the studio. In fact, my friends all call it my church. I can't stay away, and, you know, that gets expensive. But it's why I'm here. My kids are um, fed and happy and alive, so I figured if I'm allowed to keep going to church as often as I can.
what about doing things at home? Because obviously we can do things now um, at home in terms of recording that that could not be done 15 years ago. Um, does that does that have any kind of allure for you at all? Or is it still the studio is a, is a better place for you to be? It depends on the project, actually. Uh, I haven't had a problem with people saying that because I know what the studio can bring about as opposed to home recording, and I didn't want to insult the listeners um, and assume that they didn't know the difference. But there's so much low-fi attractiveness that does serve some material, uh, and the fact that it's so much easier to crawl into your skull when um, nobody's looking at you. <laughs> I'm such a shy person that I think I, I probably could be able to uh, serve the right material um, by hiding out this way. I do like to support my engineers and recording studios so that they can continue because there is an industry beneath the big dumb one that has always been smart, always been about integrity and timelessness. And so I like to do what I can for those good people, whether they're radio stations or record stores or producers or videographers, you know, this is a whole sub industry and you know, engineers are the, they're the first to um, lose their, their livelihoods when people decide that home recording is just as good as studio recording. I guess it just depends on what the songs ask. You mentioned that you're shy, and it's it's interesting. A lot of musicians are shy. A lot of a lot of artists are shy. Um, but music is so uh, such a public expression when you do it live. Why do you think that so many shy people are attracted to the medium of of music? I think real musicians are shy, and performers aren't. So there are a lot of performers who have adopted sound as their technique <laughs> performing. I'm not judging it. I just think it's a very different way to move people. Musicians would be happy hiding, but we're not allowed to. There's no such job as hiding musician, really. Um, I hope that will change. And it, I don't see why it, why it wouldn't, but the, the live experience is something you have to get past as a shy person. It's not hard because if you are a real musician, the, the focus removes all self-consciousness. You're asking so much of yourself that you're certainly not going to try to be a performer. That would be lying in the whole exercises in telling the truth. So I, my technique was to just disappear on stage, and I literally did. I had an, um, an alternate personality, which was music, and so I had no memory of having written, recorded, or performed any of my material, so I literally disappeared into another personality. Um, and when I was uh, treated for PTSD is when I found out that that's what had been going on all these years, and... So there is a there was a learning curve of sorts, but not as steep as you would think. I no longer had any stage fright because I knew who I was up there. I had memories of 
my songs and what they were about and who I was when I performed them. So it's almost more honest because my presentation was my self instead of just my music self. So music is a very uh, is a very distinctive part of oneself because it it's not part of you. It can't be. It would be smaller than you then, and then who would want to listen to it? And when you do your solo shows now, where it really is just you, uh, even when you're doing interspersing it with bits from your books, um, that that's even more intimate than you know anything you've ever done in terms of it's your name, it's just you. Uh, there's no band, you know, for the solo acoustic shows or whatever that might be. Um, that experience is incredibly intimate for the listener. Yeah, uh, I I got past that by telling stories on stage um, because it made me feel like I was just there with maybe one other person. If you treat the audience like one person, then you're not so shy. <laughs> Um, and they would talk to me, and they're, they're, anybody who listens to me is, um, I don't know, they're not going to be trendy, they're going to be sort of responsive, and by trendy I mean um, someone who doesn't engage in the timeless, who just kind of moves from style pattern to style pattern, and that's not really what they're going to be about, so I trust them. It was difficult at first because I had to wear my contacts on stage, <laughs> my, my drummer and I really loved the the nearsighted fuzziness of performing. We get lost in fuzzy sounds, like a sensory deprivation thing. <laughs> and then when I played solo, I had to walk out onto these big theater stages and find that stool that they make you sit on if you're female with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> it's like it's the same songs, but I have to climb up this thing now and. Uh, I was afraid I would bump into it if I didn't, you know, trip and fall off. I didn't have contacts in. So wearing contacts was a big deal. I could suddenly see the audience and know that they weren't one person <laughs> or one light shining into my eyes. But um, you get you get used to it. And, you know, like I say, the fact that I was disappearing as soon as the song started made it easier. <laughs> Well, it's funny, you, you you mentioned the PTSD, and I know I just recently read an essay where the author was suggesting that PTSD is really uniquely American because we're, um, we're, we're so isolated, actually, as people in the sense that other cultures are far more intimate and American culture is kind of isolating. And I'm not sure if you've found that or if, you, if, that's, if that's sort of occurred to you um, or if that's come up in, as, you've, as you've addressed that. Um, but it's a pretty interesting theory that, you know, the idea that like a lot of Israelis who see a lot of war, for example, uh, they don't suffer from it because they have this enormous family unit that's actually, you know, not everyone's sleeping in different rooms and different, you know, that everyone's more together. And they, they say that togetherness is a really fast way to, it sounds easy, maybe it oversimplifies it, but to uh, to conquer that. I'm not sure if you've, if you've experienced that in terms of intimacy of people. Uh, as a, as a wow, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I would have done without my bandmates. Um, and they were the ones that were with me for sure. Uh, I don't think I ever would have been a solo artist. I would have just kept these songs to myself. But 
um, it's an, an incredibly intense experience to um, just jump off the cliff with other people this way and be supported. I think uh, that's why it didn't do me in. Because it can, it can definitely do one in for sure. If, if, uh, absolutely. Yeah. The violence doesn't stop with PTSD. Right. Um, and you can't move it back in time. It's, it's always happening. So I I went through, um, EMDR and I was cured, like I say. So all the trauma was moved back in time and that doesn't make it easier but it um it reduces that allergic reaction to triggers that ptsd is known for and um you know the the true story i suppose yes and you live the true story and that's what my bandmates could do with me is live the true story with me i wasn't really in the true story i was in this ongoing nightmare but i think people would be surprised to hear that ptsd can be cured uh, I think some people think that it's something that you have to carry around with you for the rest of your life when in fact you, you don't. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, for me anyway, and I know some, you know, victims of shell shock have been um, treated and cured in just a few sessions. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's completely turned my life around. I, I, don't suffer from any kind of mental illness or symptom any longer. And music is music. I'm not going to say just music. It's just as powerful as it ever was, but I don't, I have to disappear in order to go to that powerful place any longer. I think it's good for listeners to hear you say that because I think that sometimes people feel, um, having gone through something traumatic that now, now that I have PTSD or I have this, this, um, going on that I have to, I have to carry it with me forever. Um, it's so great to hear you say you don't, you actually can, you can address it and, and eradicate it. Yeah. And you need muscles and you need balls. I'm just going to say that we're, we're people, we can't keep whining to each other and blaming each other and, uh, calling ourselves victims and move forward either alone or together. You, we are here to develop our muscles and to have big balls and help each other. And that's what it's for. So if I found that I was uh, creating something and putting it out that wasn't going to help someone, I would have to, I would have to question that form of strength. It, it becomes uh, an exercise in manipulation, and we're not here to do that. We have to be strong enough to be soft. Every, everyone knows that. And victims are often just not. So we just don't. We don't have that option. We can't stay there. Have listeners reached out to you and, and written you notes and saying that that they've been affected and and helped by what you've what you've said publicly and in your books? Yeah, although. My first book was about being misdiagnosed bipolar, and I sort of became a poster child for bipolar disorder. <laughs> so it's not that 
people are missing the point, really. It's just that it's sort of some stepping stones toward this realization that we are here to achieve clarity. And in my case, it was possible. I'm not saying it's always possible, but um, there, there was no mental illness at play. There was only music and a survival mechanism. When one is misdiagnosed, is it because they had a bad doctor? Is it someone misread it? Um, when we hear misdiagnosis, I think sometimes we turn off our brains and we don't know what, actually what that means. Um, was it someone made a mistake? Is that really what we're talking about? I suppose so. I mean, that's a good question. A bit of a rhetorical one, probably. I was initially diagnosed schizophrenic because songs were experienced as auditory hallucinations. And then um, they sort of reduced my sentence to bipolar. And, you know, that means manic depression. And I said, well, I'm not manic or depressed. And they, they would say, it's always a mixed state with you. And I said, well, that's, that's not bipolar, is it? Bipolar means two poles. And I tried, and I tried to play along, and they'd always say, people never believe their diagnosis. And I just always suspected it was being a musician, and yet it was hard for me to find any other musicians that would sort of play along with my impression of the experience, which just seemed so much more intense than, than theirs. It was my God. And that's when you start getting into this art associated with mental illness territory. I think really it's the other way around. Um, we, we think there's a place to go that is artful and crazy, but we just haven't begun to work with art in our lives enough to the point where we can stop calling it crazy. You know, even the word magic, you want to say magic is real, it, it still refers to something we just haven't measured yet. Yeah, and I think that the, you know, there's, there's a sort of insistence from the external community when dealing with artists where they want to categorize them. You know, like, it's so easy to dismiss someone like Sylvia Plath, um, to categorize her in a certain way and, and to kind of miss really what was going on with her. Um, you know, or, or Van Gogh or whoever you might pick, Nick Drake. It, it, it almost doesn't matter. Um, yeah, and it's probably what um, the disabled often say, which is it's not, the problem isn't in my body, it's in my culture. You know, it's change the culture and suddenly I belong. Suddenly you're not causing so many problems for me and I'm not causing so many problems for you. It, I think the that... Uh, that is the crux of the matter, and yet there's so many people willing to play along with a sort of melodrama of it, um, a cartoon version of intensity that they like because they don't know drama. They haven't lived through drama. Anyone who has doesn't want to invite melodrama. You know, life is... Life is intense, and that's good. But once you know that, you're not going to be one of the fakers. That's insulting to everyone and to your own story, which is 
a gift and it's what gives you your muscles. You, I, I, you know, it's not like, I just think that it can be a problem for us to celebrate the the one dimensional version of what you're talking about. That's right. And you, and you mentioned that your, your bandmates were so instrumental in, um, you wouldn't have, you know, couldn't have imagined have, have, you know, conquered what you did without them. And I think it's so important to, to have that sort of, um, your Confederates. It, it's so, so important. I know we just, we just lost Tommy Keen and, you know, I just saw the tributes that are pouring in are from musicians who felt such a Confederacy with, with Tommy and, you know, to lose one of your own is, is like losing a part of yourself. And, you know, the fact that, that Troy Muses are recording, the fact that um, obviously you're close with Tanya and, you know, I listened to Kim Deal talking about recording with her sister again in The Breeders and hearing those things make me happy because I feel like we need to keep each other around. We're, you I know. know, yeah. My son Wyatt says, you got to find your teammate. And he has to remind me that you know, as we forge these idiosyncratic paths, we're not alone. We are social creatures for not a not not a flimsy reason. There's complexity to that. You know, as there is complexity to happiness, we tend to diminish the social, to diminish the positive, as if it's dumb. Um, but there is some gentle sociability in those idiosyncratic paths. There's some intense complexity in a darker impression of rightness and joy. Um, it's, it's very celebratory uh, that is not tied down uh, by the past. So it can be lonely. And you have to go find those teammates. They may be dead. They may be um, dogs. You have to find good souls and know that you are not here alone because we're we're not made to be here alone. Otherwise, music would be a lot quieter. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, it would. Have you found it challenging to maintain relationships? Um, over the years, or because I know people get spread out, people go through different things, um, or have you have you found your teammates and kept them close? And has that has that been something easier to manage? Well, a lot of them do die. Uh, people like us are sort of fragile, um, and like I say, a lot of them were already dead. Like Nick Drake. <laughs> It doesn't make their impact any less in your life, necessarily. Um, and then I find that I make, I meet more every day. I, I was out uh, yesterday, it was Thanksgiving, and my little boy didn't want me near the kitchen. So <laughs> I went to the beach, and I met a man with the DTs who needed five bucks, and uh, an ear. So I listen to his story, and then I'm never gonna forget him. His his eyes were so clear that 
I know he was a teammate, and I know how hard he works. And then I met another guy who was falling down a hill and needed me to catch him. <laughs> and then I met a, a cashier whose clarity was just so vivid. His kindness was palpable and quiet, you know, not necessarily expressive. But you can go out and you can you can find your teammates. They're there, and you can go into the past and find your teammates, and they're there, and it's okay if you can't touch them, and it's okay if you never see them again. I guess it's it's what matters. You have to find what matters, and often that's people. And this is something that, again, like a 15-year-old who feels, you know, like an outsider, hearing you say that would, I think, make them feel so much better, that you just have to look around. I mean, they they may not be at your high school. <laughs> you know, sometimes, oh, yeah. you know, and they're not going to be in magazines, or not, and they they may be on TV, but you gotta go looking, and it's really depressing. And they may be putting out records, but you gotta go looking, and it's really depressing. You gotta plow through crap sometimes, and so when you get tired of people who are selling themselves um, instead of the work they do, then go out into the world and find the people that aren't. They will inform your output more than liars, for sure. This is why I loved your book so much about Vic Chestnut. I mean, that, that's what really made me think about confederacy and friendship and the way that we treat and the way that we look at each other. It's such a, such a beautiful book. Um, but Thank you. It really you is. Kind of read it. Oh, and, and Vic was just a remarkable, remarkable artist. Um, but you, you know, you, you talk about friendship and how important it is and you, and you find those teammates and you, and you keep them as close as you can or as close as they'll let you. Cause sometimes, sometimes your teammates don't want to be that close, even though they're still your teammates. Um, yeah, yeah. And you can still, you can still be close to them. It's your patience that is your, your friend, your best friend in that case. And your, um, your will, I suppose. That doesn't, you don't have to touch them, like I said. Like, your will is there, and their will is there. It's it's um, it's more impactful than, than Adam's holding a chair together. Yeah, and it's really, it's funny, because when I, I started doing radio as a 15-year-old and, and in high school, and my radio partner, who's still one of my dearest friends, I he's a professor in New York, and I, I texted him last night saying, you know, Tommy Keene had died, because he, he and I listened to Tommy a lot. And he wrote back, and he said he was like our uncle. And I, and I thought, yeah, like, you know, these, these people feel like relatives. They feel like family. Um, when you find those teammates, they, they almost transcend, uh, you know, friendship. And they, they move into kind of a more hallowed place um, where they feel filial. Absolutely. And, and it reminds me of that, that Vonnegut idea where everybody was given a, a nickname by the government. Oh, yeah. <laughs> started hanging out and then they would find what was in common about each other the the essence of that isn't the silliness of it it's the fact that you can find kinship because your middle name is daffodil (laughs) (laughs) all you need is somebody to say go find a daffodil and you find one (laughs) that's right i've always i've always loved your work because i you've never seemed afraid to wrestle with things that are bigger than you and I've always appreciated that, and I've always found, um, you know, through the tumult, you you make you make sense of it. And I think it's always been such a valuable listen. But I always wonder, 
you're not afraid to wrestle with the big stuff, but is it scary to wrestle with that stuff? Has it been, has it been daunting to sort of hit that subject material and, and stare it down and go, all right, I'm going to do this, but this is, but this is daunting. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> there was nothing easy about it. Every song was life or death to me. And then when it was done, the song would say, okay, you're, you're done. Go die. Like, I only was here for them. It's like they were keeping me alive so that they could have sound bodies. So they were these, I mean, bitch goddess is a gentle word for what they were in my life. Uh, now, after going through integration, I realize that the balls that come from muscular trauma that life inflicts on some of us, not all of us, are those gods. You know, there's there's nothing lesser about being human. I still don't like the idea of self-expression. I just know that I have to live these stories that are so intense uh, in order to be the right person to play this music. Uh, but I, I think if they were just about me, then nobody else would like them or a bunch of dummies would like them. <laughs> I think uh-huh. I'm somewhere in the middle where no one's ever really going to pay attention, but I just, my teammates and I can sort of hang out till we're done. What can you tell me about the new Thrive Muses record without saying too much or giving away too much? It's, this is the craziest record we've ever made in my opinion. I know the first one was really crazy, but this one doesn't even sound crazy, which is even crazier to me. (laughs) But I I did have to sit my bandmates down and say, okay, you have to respond in opposed dynamics and opposed structure. And it would be great if we could play out of time and out of tune. not what musicians like to hear um but the the fragility inherent in that it it sounds um live i think there's so much chaos in it that it sounds like you're in the room with the the band and i've tried to bring that about with you know obviously there's the room mic that you you turn up and the the listener feels like they're in the room Last my on my last record, I, that wasn't enough. I had to go take field recordings all over the world. Say, okay, the organic nature of these sounds that you haven't heard before is ear candy plus your body. So it's not going to turn you off. You haven't quite heard it before, maybe. Um, and so that was another. It was like a big giant room mic, the God mic, <laughs> to bring the, the listener in. And and yeah, it's still um, there's a measured quality to that recording. Uh, it's called Wyatt at the Coyote Palace, and it's two whole CDs of just, like, nobody telling me to shut up. But this new Throwing Muses is sort of mimics the impression of um, the live experience, meaning it's like a few steps away from how it feels, but it's trying to, to mimic that, I think. So there's that immediacy I believe so. And a wrongness to it, the way sound bounces around and the way 
musicians bounce around and um, obviously the live experience should be ephemeral or should go away uh, and live records don't ever sound the way they feel to be there so I, I think um, this does though that it just sounds like somebody who's never heard music before <laughs> trying to play it <laughs> It sounds awful, doesn't it? No, it sounds cool. I want to hear it. I, I've ex- this... <laughs> I think what I mean is Neo Surf. How's that? Okay, yeah, I like that. I like that too. <laughs> well, you know, Chris, I got, I got to tell you, you, you are my teammate, and you've been my teammate for you know thirty years, and I, I'm so glad to chat with you. Oh, you are so lovely and so smart, and you changed my day. I needed that today. Thank you. So there you go. Kristen Hirsch. Ah, don't you love her? She's the greatest. Uh, If you're interested in Kristen Hirsch's work, and I hope you are, go to KristenHirsch.com. That's Kristen with an I and Hirsch with an E. Dot com or throwingmuses.com or go to YouTube and go down the Kristen Hirsch Throwing Muses rabbit hole. You will be up all night in utter amazement. So that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, coming up next week, who do we have? Who's coming up on the show? We have Kevin Haskins of Bauhaus. We have Bradley from the Bye Bye Blackbirds. Martin Stevenson from Martin Stevenson and the Dainties. We've got a, uh, a full dance card, as it were, and I couldn't be happier. That's it for us today, but for past and future programs, go to iTunes and uh, type in Bombshell Radio and, uh, and feel free to, uh, to download us, feel free to comment about us, and feel free to tell your friends about us. Yeah, those are three things that we'd like for you to do. You know what, though? If you go one for three, we're not going to be upset. We'll be happy. Oh, for three? Ah, oh, come on. You don't want to be that person. Who are we kidding? You're here, so we love you anyway. All right. Okay. I'm Alex Green. That was Stereo Embers, the podcast. I will see you next week on the show. As always, thank you for listening to Bombshell Radio.